Welcome to Radical Simple Living Podcast. This is Series 2 and it's Episode 7. I'm Ray Lovegrove and as normal I'm talking to you from the kitchen of my homestead here in southern Sweden. Small land. It's very beautiful here and I'm surrounded as normal by cats with a crackling fire in the background. Now this is of course the land of the Vikings. Most of the Vikings that lived in, I know it's a controversial word Vikings, but I'll use it because everybody knows what I mean. Most of the Vikings that lived in Sweden went out to the east to explore and conquer. They went into what is now Russia and into the Baltic states and and travelled a long way down from that. So travelled far. And most of those Vikings that lived in Norway and Denmark, or what is Norway and Denmark today, went to the west. So they went out and uh, conquered and raided sites in Britain and Ireland and Normandy. And they went on to create settlements in Iceland and in Greenland and in North America, in Vinland, as they called it. Now... um, Okay, what did those Vikings do? Well, I'll tell you a nasty story about Vikings. Vikings liked to raid monasteries. And there were lots of monasteries on the northeast coast of Britain, including a very famous one called Lindisfarne. And when the Vikings got there, they found there were lots of gold and and precious gems and all kinds of things they could take with them and steal. And invariably what happened to the monks that lived there is that they were killed. But the Vikings had a very nasty thing they used to... Well, it could be nasty, but, you know, killing all the monks is pretty nasty to start with. But they always used to leave one monk alive. And the idea was that monk would live to tell everyone else what had happened. So the Vikings were... Uh, doing terrible things there, but they also had one eye, eye on publicity. You know, that's the equivalent of, of somebody nowadays doing something terrible and then posting a, a blog post about it or uh, on social media posting about what they've done. We know this happens and it happened then also. Leaving one monk alive was one way to ensure that what had happened there would become infamous. And of course, the net result of that on the people that lived there at the time was to induce fear and terror. People were terrified in case the Vikings were going to come back. And we can only imagine what living with that terror must have been like. And that happened over lots of Western Europe and it happened for a a long time. Now, you might think there's not much in common with what happens today. We don't suffer any more from Viking raids. Um, you'll be pleased here. If you are suffering a Viking raid, please, please let me know. Um, but I think we also have lots of news of terror. We have the equivalent of the monk left alive to tell the story, don't we? We have social media, news, fake news... All kinds of things telling us what's going on in the world. And we know that these things are pretty bad. The news over the past two years has been bad. I often have a little competition with myself. There's no newspapers get delivered here to where I live in Smallland. So 
I have to go on the internet and look at newspapers and look at uh, news broadcasters and see what they're they're putting out. And sometimes I try hard to find a good story. And sometimes that good story is about who's won the fattest bear in the world contest or something like that. And congratulations to the bear that won it this year, by the way. But quite often there are days when there is no good news whatsoever. And what we're faced with is lots and lots and lots of really bad news. Now, some of that bad news is environmental. Some of it's about what's happening to our planet in terms of weather, in terms of rising sea level, in terms of natural habitats being destroyed. And some of that bad news is about wars and countries being invaded and countries going to war with one another. Some of the bad news is about terrorism, which is often linked to the, the previous idea about wars. Terrorism is on the increase. And there's also crime. There's mass shootings, another terrible, terrible one in, in Maine this week. Now, we're all subjected to this, even if you try and isolate yourself. And even if you say, I'm not going to watch the news. And, uh, you know, I, I used to watch a lot more news than I do now because now I just try and limit myself to a couple of times a day, tuning in, see what's happening. Um, if we hear the news, we are like those people that heard of Viking raids, going to be anxious and we're going to be worried. And what I'd like to talk about today is how do we respond to those worries? The podcast is about simple living. So is there a simple way to respond to the bad news we hear? all around us. Do we move somewhere that we perceive safe? Do we start prepping? Do we increase our household security? Do we live in fear or do we say, well, it won't happen to me? Or do we adopt some compromise position on that? That's what I want to look at. And I thought of a couple of titles for this podcast. One of them was one thing leads to another because it does. One thing invariably leads to another. I live in a country, Sweden here, which is a wonderful, beautiful, peaceful country where we haven't been at war for centuries. But we are now under threat. We face threat from terrorist organisations to uh, take reprisals on Sweden and its citizens. And there have been some reprisals in the last two weeks. Um, we are under threat from the Russian Federation, which has made all kinds of threats against Sweden and our sister country, Finland. And we learned this week that there is a lake inside the Russian Federation, which is going to have boats armed with nuclear missiles specifically aimed at sites in Sweden and Finland. So we, we could be terrified by this. We could be worried. Or we, we need some kind of response, something we need to do. I also live in the middle of a forest. And last year, as several years in the last uh, uh, seven or eight, we faced drought and there were daily warnings of the risk of forest fires. Cookouts were banned in Sweden again this year. Uh, I like to eat outside, I like to cook outside. But it was banned this year for most of the summer simply because the risk of forest fires was too great. And some of you I know live in parts of the world where you're in a hurricane belt 
or there's risks of monsoon flooding or there's risk of drought or there's risk of forest fire and we as humans have to accommodate all this risk and worry now first of all my drawing your attention to viking roads at the beginning is really me attempting to say people have always had threats there have always been threats against people and their safety very very few people have had a life that is divorced entirely from worries about all sorts of bad things happening maybe there were times in the 20th century maybe the time after the end of world war ii before the cold war really got under steam where people could breathe and relax and that was a bit of a golden age but maybe not now how we respond to things like this how we respond to these threats around us probably has a lot to do with a number of things and i've listed one two three four five different things here uh, that are going to dictate how we respond to threats threats to our simple life the life that we want to live threats from outside and these five things are facets of ourselves that we have that really affect our outlook on life and our understanding of what's going on around it now one of these is politics there is no doubt about it that your political views and i don't mean party politics i don't mean if you support the the republicans or the democrats or in in much of the world the, the labor party or the conservative party or the liberal party or the green party or whatever the political parties are in your country now we have a lot in sweden we have political parties that's goodness we we have proportional representation and there's lots of parties to represent different views and, and that's good you may however live in a what is essentially a two-party uh, system and either way we're not talking about party politics we're talking about your deep political views your views about things like equality your views on things like migration your views on things like uh, taxation all of these things shape your political view and your political view is going to have a big effect on how you respond to bad news on a very basic level one incredibly simplistic point of view is to blame everything that's going wrong on the political party that holds power in your country at the moment and make an assumption that if there's an election and you can replace the ruling political party with a political party that you personally support everything is going to be better now i'm sorry to say and i'm sorry to disillusion you that i believe the problems facing our world at the moment are not going to be solved in that way the problems are so overwhelming that any political party that claims to have all the answers quite frankly can uh, be taken with a pinch of salt if they win the election wherever you live if you change the political system you are still going to face the same problems and i don't hear a lot of wonderful new ideas coming out about how to solve some of these issues at all the second thing that's going to affect how you react to these things are your religious views some people are deeply religious and belong to a certain religious um, tradition and other people are lightly religious in that they have a spiritual set of beliefs that don't align particularly with any organized church either way 
those are going to affect your views of what's happening. I know people who believe that all the terrible things that are happening are signs that the, that the end of the world is nigh and, and they fully believe that. Other people think that their religious views teach them to be um, resistant to these things that go on and have faith that all is going to be made good in the end. So your religious views, whatever they are, are going to have effect on how you relate to these threats that they are around us. And there's your personal philosophy. Again, I don't expect you to sign up to a particular philosophy and say, oh, I'm an existentialist or I'm a transcendentalist or I'm a nihilist or, or whatever. Your personal philosophy is going to have an influence on you, in particular how stoical you are. You know that Stoics are people who tend to accept things. And um, if, you, if you read what Jesus said in the Bible, not what G people said about Jesus, what Jesus said himself, Stoicism is a very important part of what Jesus has to say, isn't it? Turning the other cheek, walking another mile. All of these are examples of accepting what's happening to you a little bit and going with them. Now, your philosophy also might include things like an idea of self-reliance. It might include an idea that, you know, all things must pass. All of these are philosophical ideas, which we've gone into on earlier podcasts and we will return to. But um, we, need to, we need to look at how our philosophy affects what we think is going to happen. Next comes our personality type. And I want to talk about personality type in a bit more detail later on and simplify what we, what you may have already done in order for uh, a complete understanding of what I'm trying to do with this podcast. So we'll come back to personality. And the other thing is your scientific views. Are you basically trusting a science or do you not believe what scientists tell you? Now, I have to say, as a scientist, my training and my degree and my working life was as a chemist, pharmaceutical chemist and later a teacher of chemistry. And, yeah, I have a scientific view for things. And, and, and one of my scientific irritating, it irritates other people, is I want to know how people know things. If somebody says to me, if you, if you rub mashed potato in your scalp at night, it will cure male pattern baldness. Now, I would classify that as pseudoscience because there's no experiments, there's no data, there's no research done into this. It's probably somebody did it once and thought that it worked and so thought they'd publicise it. Or more likely not, somebody thought that they could sell one of those annoying ads on social media to get you to read it. Um, there's no, you know, pseudoscience, false science is all around us. And if you want to know what's false and what isn't false, look for evidence. Don't read an article in a magazine or on Facebook or somewhere and say, oh, scientists have discovered if you run measurements. Find out which scientists have done it. Find out what the methodology is. And that leads us on to the second kind of science, which is what I call limp science. And limp science tends to use scientific language and it tends to use scientific research but it tends to be flawed and it's usually there because somebody somewhere wanted to publish a paper 
and they didn't have anything that would make a very exciting paper so they came up with something i'll give you an example of that a few years ago i i saw an article in a in a a, a comment on a on our website that said research has shown that vegetarians are more prone to depression and i was unsure about that and being a scientist i wanted to find out more about it so i clicked through to the paper and I found that it was a, a study that went on over 40 years to see what disorders people would come up with later on in life, according to their diet. And there, I think there were 7,000 plus people involved in this. Now, the first flaw in this is that 7,000 isn't very big for something like that. And the second flaw in that is that it was based on a questionnaire. And the problem with questionnaires is that people lie in them. Um, and, and why do people lie? Well, because they sometimes give answers that they will think make them look good. They will sometimes give answers that they think the person setting the questionnaire wants to hear. And, and sometimes they will just lie because they think there's a better answer than the one they first came up with. How many times, be honest with me now, how many times have you done a questionnaire somewhere on a website or something like that or in a magazine at the dentist's washing room and the answer it's come up with hasn't quite pleased you? you know, what kind of person are you? Are? And then you look at the results and it says you are this kind of person and you think, I didn't think I was that kind of person. I thought I was the other kind of person. And so what do you do? You do the questionnaire again. And this time you alter your answers a little bit to get in the category you want to get into. Hands up who's done that. Everybody except two has put up their hands saying they've done that at some time. That's, that's revealing in itself, isn't it? This research said there were 7,000 people and it wanted to find out if they were vegetarian or not. How did it find that out? Did it say to them, are you vegetarian? No. It said, give details of the meals you ate on Friday and Saturday of last week and people gave details of what they ate. Now I'm convinced people would lie about that because they might put down Friday lunchtime what did you have for lunch they might say oh a cottage cheese and pineapple salad because that sounds healthy and it sounds good doesn't it. But what they really did is went straight round to McDonald's and, and got supersized at the counter and, and ate it. But they're not going to put that down the questionnaire because that sounds bad. But on the basis of that questionnaire, what people ate on a Friday and Saturday, they decided if they were vegetarian or not. And all they did is they looked to see if there was any meat. Now, any self-respecting vegetarian will mean it's not just about meat, it's looking on the ingredients and seeing if there's gelatin or animal fats or other things. But they said, right, if there's no meat in what people have eaten for two days, they're vegetarian. Now, that was one weekend 40 years ago, and that decided for the rest of the study whether people were vegetarians or not. Um, it, they could have become a vegetarian the next day. They could have been a vegetarian at the time and given up vegetarianism. They could have been lying, as I've said earlier. There's all kinds of flaws with this. And of the 7,000, if you read further down in the methodology on this, you find out only 80 of the 7,000 people were vegetarians under this, this questionnaire basis.
And sure enough, 40 years later, they do a measure of depression and they find that more of the people in the vegetarian group were suffering from depression than those in the non-vegetarian group as a percentage. Now, two more problems occur for this, this bit of rubbish. One is that how did they discover if people were depressed or not? Yeah, they gave them another questionnaire to do. And the questionnaire said, oh, okay, there's it. The worst bit, however, is of the original 7,000 people they got to do this study, they lost 7,000, they, sorry, they lost 70% of them on the way. So if you take 70% away from the 7,000, you realise they've only got a tiny study they're doing in the end. And if you take 70% of 80 people away, you realise there's only a few people left. So the headline of this article, which is Vegetarians More Likely to Suffer from Depression, is complete limp science. It's based on questionnaires, it's based on all sorts of things that people do, and it has no validity whatsoever. It is limp science, it dresses itself up as science, but it isn't. So if you see a scientific article and you read it, before you believe it, click through to where it gives you a link to research paper, go to the bit called methodology and read it and decide if you believe it or not. And if you do, that's fine. If you don't, that's not. Real scientific research isn't like that. Real scientific research is good and solid and peer group reviewed. And it is much better than that, believe me. Right, here's a personality test for you to do for the sake of this podcast. Now, this isn't a scientifically proven personality test. It's just to give you some idea of your attitudes. So forget all you've read about Briggs-Meyer and stuff like that, and I'm not dismissing that for one minute. I just would ask you to do this. Draw a line on a piece of paper, and one side of that line, on the left-hand side, write the, le the letter O. O stands for optimistic. And on the other end of that line, write the letter P, which stands for pessimistic. Now, in the middle of that line, would you like to draw another line of the same length, which is vertical? And at the top of that line, would you like to write the letter I, which stands for introvert? And at the bottom of that line, would you like to write the letter E for extrovert? So, I at the top, E at the bottom, O at the left and P on the right. Now, would you like for a minute to go along the horizontal line and assess yourself about whether you're optimistic or pessimistic? You know, this old adage about are you a glass half full or a glass half empty person? Just to try and decide. If you think I'm in the middle, put yourself in the middle. If you think you're a very pessimistic person, both on the far right, if you're mildly pessimistic, a little bit to the right. So just think about that line and where you want to put yourself. And then, again, in a totally unscientific way, let's just close this fire down. It's roaring away in the background here. Decide for yourself whether you think you're introvert or extrovert. 
Now this is difficult because if, if other people assess you, they may think you're more extrovert than you are or more introvert than you are. But this is about you. You don't have to tell anyone else about this. Just put a mark there. Now, take your point on the horizontal and the vertical and that will take you somewhere into the space and put a little cross which marks where you are. A little cross that either puts you in the top right hand side or the bottom right hand side or the top left hand side or the, 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 the bottom left hand side and how far you are from the centre describes whether you're introvert pessimist or whether you're uh, extrovert optimist and wherever you are I believe this has more to say with how you're going to respond to events. I think that it's a very clear test of how you if you're an extrovert optimist you're going to hear bad news on the radio and you're going to say right what's for supper and tomorrow I might do that you're not going to be bothered by it if you're an introvert pessimist you're going to say oh no more bad news what am I going to do about this and um, so that's going to have also an input in how you think about things now, you, you, how do you get all these things? How do you get your personality? Your, well, this brings us to another debate, doesn't it? This brings us back to the nature-nurture debate. And some people say you are like you are because you were born that way. And some people say you are like you are because of your upbringing and your environment. And some people say it's a mixture of the two. Now, with a few specific examples where we've been able to identify genes that relate to something, um, certain kinds of cancer, schizophrenia, certain genetic disorders, we've identified the gene and we can say absolutely that's one of the major factors. Sometimes these genes need to be switched on or switched off and we know that happens too, operational genes. Um, but a lot of people talk a lot of rubbish about nature-nurture. A lot of people will say, why was Mozart a great composer? And they'll say, well, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart was a great composer, probably because his father, Leopold Mozart, was a composer. But they're ignoring the fact that little Wolfie was brought up in a house where there was lots of music going on all the time. And he may have picked up on those things. We don't know. It's the same with Bach, the Bach family. Johann Sebastian was one of a family of composers. But we can't look back in history and identify what he was born with that made him a composer or whether it was environment. What we could have done if, if one of the Bachs was born as an identical twin and one of them was brought up in the musical family and the other one was brought up in a shoemaking family, we might have some idea. But we don't know that information, so we can't conclude from it. It's very difficult to do twin studies. And many of the twin studies that have been done in the past have proved to be fake, I'm afraid. A very famous uh, scientist in Britain called Charles faked all his uh, information on twin studies. So we don't have a lot of information there. But I would like to draw your attention to... The case of a woman called Fatima Whitbread. 
Now I'm not much of a sporting person, so I had to look up these details because I I I, I don't have a lot of sporting knowledge. But those of you who do may recognise the name Fatima Whitbread as an Olympic gold and world record breaking um, javelin thrower. And you may say, well, how did she get to be that great javelin player? And then you will realise that her mother was also an internationally competing javelin thrower. And you say, well, there you go. There you go. There's your answer. Fatima was brought up by her mother. They have the genes for throwing the javelin in that family. Um, and that's why she got to be so good. But Fatima Whitbread was adopted as a baby by her mother, who was a record-breaking javelin thrower. And Fatima grew up to be an even better javelin thrower. So sometimes nurture is there and sometimes nature is there. But don't base your whole outlook on life on going for one idea for the other because I think it's still very much um, a difficult one. Now, where is all this leading? How are these things going to help us decide? I'm going to say there's something that is even more important than all those personality traits. And what I'm saying for those personality traits is how you respond to world events is really an individualistic thing. I would like to draw your attention to what happened in Scotland in the Enlightenment, where a movement came up called the Common Sense Movement. And what I want to do, and I'll have to do it in my next podcast because there's not time to do it today, is explore how common sense is the only really radical, simple way of you personally reacting to world events and what you have to do. Because I do believe there's things you have to do, and I think merely to pretend that these things aren't going on is not a good idea. Okay, so what have I been doing this week? I've been hedging. I've been getting some new bare-rooted plants to put into my native hedge. And by springtime next year, I hope to see my hedge providing these things. Flowers, fruits, nuts, nesting sites for birds, flowers, berries, and colour all the year round. If I've succeeded, I'll be able to see that starting next year and I'll be able to see that year on year getting better and better. It's been very mild here. There are some times in Sweden when there's been snow on the ground by the latter part of October, but not this year. We are relatively warm in the day, not what you describe warm, it's about five degrees outside at the moment and relatively mild at night, around 1, 2 or sometimes 0. And it's like that going into November. So that's an unusual state of affairs, but I'm making the most of it. And so are my cats. There was an enormous cat event this morning, uh, which I've got to go and investigate more fully because it is a crime scene. It involved a cat climbing onto a high shelf and knocking everything off. And I'm yet to find out which cat. When I do, it won't make any difference, but there we go. Welcome to my world. It's been nice having you, and we'll continue this discussion where we're leaving off now, next podcast, which will be in a few days' time. Bye for now.